0: Don't
1: shoot the deputies. Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. In this week's episode we're going to be thinking about why it's important that teachers can both access and apply research in their daily practice. Now I have to admit that for the first six or seven years of my teaching career I'd say my only access to research came through the odd course I happened to go on. Other than that Research was not a word I had mentioned at all in the schools I've worked in. What was your experience like, Steve?
0: Good evening, Russell. I have to say, very similar, actually, in terms of research seems to resonate when you went into a middle leadership course or a senior leadership course, but through my normal teaching day-to-day duties, research was very rarely touched upon. Uh, but this podcast is actually coming at the perfect time for me personally. I've got a senior leadership team that I work with who are really get into grips with research and we're very research driven at the moment. So to hear from a, a teacher who's very informed with regards to evidence, collaboration and research, perfect for me. Fantastic
1: yeah I think for us we really do believe that both teachers and leaders should be able to operate within a culture of professional learning and today we've got Catherine Morgan with us. Now Catherine has recently taken on a new role as an expert advisor for the Teacher Development Trust and prior to that Catherine had widespread experience working in a variety of schools and roles within inner city Birmingham. So a warm welcome to the podcast Catherine.
0: Hi Russell, hi Steve, great to be with you this evening. Thank you Catherine. Could you start by telling us about your teaching career and how you end up working for the Teacher Development Trust? And it might be good if you actually explain to everyone listening what the TDT actually is.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. So I started teaching back in 2005. I had done my degree in Nottingham in English, a BA Joint Honours, had always wanted to go into uh, teaching. I was lucky enough during my degree course to do um, students in classrooms and that was predominantly in secondary schools, although I had had some experience of working with primary. So by the time I'd left university, I was absolutely certain that I wanted to go into teaching. So I did my PGC at Birmingham University, And then had an absolute baptism of fire in my NQT year. Um, My school ended up in special measures by the time we'd hit the autumn term. And whilst it was an incredibly challenging time, I think it was probably the making of me in terms of my teaching practice, but also my understanding of uh, leadership and the overwhelming influence, either positive or negative, it can have on people's professional development. So shortly after my first school, I went on to a uh, really outstanding, high-performing junior school and had a really fantastic induction into middle leadership. So it was there that I took on subject leadership for maths and science. And I was fortunate to spend a period of time uh, teaching in Beijing and learning a lot around maths mastery. And so from that school, then I went on to a really large four form entry school in Birmingham where I was maths leader, really trying to carve out my expertise in that particular subject area. But it was there that I became really interested in evidence-informed practice, because that was a school that was using John Hattie's Visible Learning, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that later on. So finally, I ended up moving to a school as an assistant head in North Solihull, and that again was a really deprived community, lots and lots of challenges. We recalibrated the culture from the ground up and made the bold and brave decision to Enact school improvement with people development at the heart of it and that's where we started working with organisations like the Teacher Development Trust and so after many years working there as a deputy head eventually and leading on teaching and learning and curriculum, I took on the role of Director of Professional Learning and Development at a small multi-academy trust in Birmingham. Um, in Aston in and around Aston really really fantastic opportunity again serving very diverse and uh, disadvantaged communities but I was able to then develop my leadership skills across several schools and so from there I then went on to I mean I should be perhaps knocking on 60 but I am only 37 I realize i have lot around a lot but um From there, I went on to work for Ambition Institute as Associate Dean in Learning Design, and that was absolutely fantastic because it gave me the opportunity to really hone in on uh, learning design and understand how we develop teacher and leadership expertise. So finally, in the summer this year, I moved over to the Teach Development Trust in an advisory capacity. I tend not to use the word expert, so I did shudder in the introduction when you referred to the full title. The reason being, is that I... I think that the word expert is is quite nuanced. I've certainly got a lot of experience. I've certainly uh, been very grateful to have what I think is breadth and depth to that experience. But I think like all of us, we're constantly developing and that expertise Mm. is something that's never never finished. And so perhaps it's the imposter syndrome in me, but uh, I sort of ignore that when I say what job I do. But the Teach Development Trust is the national charity for CPD. So we work with schools and trusts and really support them to harness the type of culture where people development is is at the heart of school improvement.
1: Brilliant. That's such a good summary of what sounds like a really exciting career to date and and very varied. And I think you need to own the title of expert. I think that's awesome.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think my boss, David Weston, would probably say the same thing. So yeah.
1: (laughs) Too right. Too (laughs) (laughs)
0: right.
1: Okay. So Catherine, we started the episode by um, kind of admitting really that research or evidence-informed practice was not a thing that was overly talked about in the start of our career. And Steve, certainly not when we were working together initially. I know you're keen to talk about kind of professional conversations and cultures where research and evidence is at the heart of what schools do. But why should teachers and leaders even be bothered about this stuff? Why does it matter?
2: Great question. So I think that we have uh, hugely limited resources, both in time and money. And we just can't afford to waste uh, valuable learning time on pedagogy and practice that essentially is not evidence-informed so we have fallen into the trap in this country with just sort of taking our initial teacher education. I'm absolutely not going to bash IT by any stretch of the imagination but for a variety of reasons we all are inducted into a profession and we tend to develop our teaching pedagogy and practice based on our own learning experiences having, having had our own teachers And we can quickly pick up habits that are not grounded in evidence and can actually be detrimental to student learning. And I think we absolutely have the moral it's a moral imperative to ensure that we're making decisions and choices that are grounded in research and that are essentially our best bets. And what I mean by best bets is that I think Dylan William coined the phrase, and I always end up butchering it, so I do apologize if I get this wrong, but I think it's that everything works somewhere and nothing works everywhere. And so that's really powerful. And what we need to do is make sure that we're making much more evidence-informed choices. but then also having making those choices through the lens of our own context and culture, so it is very much a blending of the two. But we can't afford to make ill-informed decisions because we just haven't got the time or the resources to do so.
1: I was about to ask what you see as as barriers, Catherine, to establishing that culture. So is 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 it time and resources?
2: I think certainly time uh, from my experience now of, of spending the last sort of five or six years really focusing on professional development when you talk to teachers and school leaders time invariably is the the biggest barrier to professional development in general I think we are all aware that our budgets are incredibly stretched and feel like they're ever decreasing and no more so than this current context with COVID resources are having to be moved somewhere else but I actually think there's um more to it than that I think that there's a potential barrier in terms of our individual mindsets and and the way that we perceive our learning and I think it can be quite scary if you're an experienced teacher you've been working for 10 or 15 years and suddenly someone's saying I'm not quite sure that you're being as effective as you could be or let's discuss some of the strategies you're using in the classroom that's actually really unnerving that it's never been picked up on before and so I think there's you know a real need to be sensitive in the way that we develop people's practice and make sure that conversation is very, is at the heart of that process. And so it's not meant to sound twee that relationships matter, but they do. Now, trust is absolutely key to that, but trust is not a precursor to a relationship trust is actually uh, developed through the act of conversation and conversation generates knowledge and it generates trust and so i think sometimes they can also be barriers um, because perhaps we don't invest in the human side of things before we then try and implement something new
0: really good thanks Catherine. and i'm sitting here thinking that our listeners will be a big mixture of those in the classroom and those leading the schools but for those in the classroom who are keen to be more evidence-informed can you suggest how they can access research without having to go on a course? Or if perhaps they're in a school that's not overly into this stuff, how can they progress with it?
2: Yeah. so when I was at my previous school, so before joining the Trust, I was deputy head for teaching and learning and curriculum, and I had the whole school responsibility for CPD. And we were absolutely starting from scratch in terms of developing a research informed um, culture. And I think there's a danger perhaps to throw the kitchen sink at people in one go. And so if, if you're, you know, coming at it from the perspective of a really busy class teacher, who could have varying degrees of expertise, you know, you want to start slowly in the sense that just making them aware of some really key bloggers in the sector or some key texts that you feel would be particularly useful so for example I think Carl and Robin's book what does this look like in the classroom I think that was published in 2017 by John Katz a really excellent place to start so it looks at all sorts of different aspects of teaching. So you've got assessment, behavior, uh, literacy, questioning, and it synthesizes some key uh, research in each of those areas. And then there's opportunity to learn from some leading experts in the field who sort of discuss the implications of applying that in the classroom and what it might look like and some pitfalls to be aware of. And it's just a really powerful inroad into taking much more considered evidence-informed choices in your teaching practice. Um, obviously, the EF toolkit is fantastic and they've got a wealth of resources on their website and I think that's probably a whole school approach that I would encourage people to go down and and certainly use that toolkit to help inform the choices that they're making but if I was a leader back in school at the moment then I would be taking on sort of an approach such as highlighting blogs of the week and just drip feeding slowly but surely much more evidence-informed resources and putting things up in the staff room so we had a a working wall in our staff room in that particular school so I used to pin up all sorts of different things photocopy blogs that people could take away and we also then had a question board so we would have read something there'd be the title of that particular blog or that title of that particular research journal and then I'd pose some questions and really encourage staff to write down their thoughts and it was really important as leaders for us to model that level of vulnerability because Mm. you know People are sometimes worried that their thoughts are perhaps not valid or, you know, they're a bit uncertain of, of sharing their, what they think about a particular text. And I think you've got to model that as a leader and, and model that we're all on this learning process
0: and actually just start the conversation. Mm. Did you find that conversation in the staff room adapted from what you were doing?
2: yeah absolutely so I'll be completely honest uh, it takes time and it takes lots of hard work and I remember I spent (laughs) ages after school taking all sorts of stuff off the wall and putting backing paper back to front so that it wasn't the coloured side it was just the plain white side got some fancy post-it notes some chunky pens some blue tack I was really pleased with myself and thought oh my gosh this is going to be amazing and then I remember the next day we had a staff briefing and I introduced it I was very excited and the look of horror (laughs) on some people people's faces because they blatantly thought, oh gosh, what's she introducing now? And I think that this sort of, these reflections are really important and leadership's really tough. We all make loads of mistakes and reflecting back on that period, I absolutely should have done a better job of explaining why we were doing this, that it wasn't just sort of something new, you know, and I think that type of culture takes time, but slowly but surely over that first half term, people started to write comments. But then, like, honestly, Steve, what was so powerful was that people would then bring in things that they'd read, or recommend a blog they'd found or recommend um, a book that they'd read. And so actually, I in the end became redundant, because it became a tool that everybody had ownership over. And I think probably the stumbling blocks at the beginning, and me needing to sort of own up to perhaps not implementing it very well, really got people on side because I think they thought you know what she's human and she's doing this for the right reason and it's for us so let's let's own it
1: nice so it sounds like what you're talking about there for leaders is this kind of drip drip approach of just normalizing the idea of research in your school making that a normal thing for people to talk about is that what you're saying
2: Yeah, absolutely, Russell. So I think the element of social norms is really, really interesting here. So I'm currently studying um, an educational leadership master's at Gloucester University, and we've been really unpicking what organisations are, what culture actually is, and social norms keep coming up time and time again. I think we underestimate that social norms have both intended and unintended consequences. And when you are trying to implement something new, you absolutely need to have done your homework, into what business as usual is. So what I mean by that are things like the language we use, our approach to working collaboratively, really trying to understand individual um, starting points what some of the pitfalls and barriers might be so we're planning to mitigate against those before we're even then trying to start something new and I think the key thing is is really trying to normalize it so trying to create that sort of repetition so that there's almost an automaticity in the way that people are using these resources so with that uh, staff room example uh, as an example it became a real conversational tool and it suddenly became a social norm and it was utilized at the beginning of briefings at the end of the day and then if you can tie it into whole school priorities and use it as an opportunity to uh, further support any action classroom inquiry or action research that's taking place it then becomes a really integral tool as opposed to just an add-on or a nice to have or Catherine's just trying to throw research at us again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that so I'm just imagining Catherine that we, we've we got some teachers listening to the podcast who they're they're really excited by this they want to work in a school culture like this but perhaps it doesn't exist and they're not in a place right now to to move on how can the teacher on the ground who might not have leadership that's overly passionate about research and evidence-informed practice how can they still access this stuff Where, where might they go to access this stuff in their busy schedule do you think
2: Yeah, so interestingly, I've been speaking to some teachers over this last term, I can't believe that we we're at the end of the autumn term already in my TDT role. And it's interesting because not all of those teachers are necessarily working in schools that have the type of culture where evidence-informed practice is at the heart for a variety of reasons. And it's never through a lack of, you know, trying, but their school improvement priorities at the moment perhaps might not necessarily be aligned with that particular approach. And so it's been interesting listening to them talk about the places that they go to access Uh, more sort of evidence and research and I think Twitter remains one of the most popular tools but it's really important to remember that the vast majority of teachers aren't on Twitter and I think sometimes it can become an echo chamber and we can see comments and they sort of carry such weight but actually I always try and take everything with a bit of a pinch of salt and I know that some people use Facebook forums but if we're really getting to uh, the nitty-gritty of evidence then again signposting them to things like the EEF and having a look especially Spending time going through that toolkit and really looking at the uh, month's progress, the cost, the time and, and reading through some of those evidence reviews and considering what that might look like through their own context lens and most importantly in their classroom with their students. So I think when we are engaging with evidence, there's a danger to perhaps you know have a scattergun approach and we're really blessed very fortunate to have so much access to really high quality evidence at the moment I'd say we're probably almost in danger of having too much because I don't necessarily think then there's the time to deeply think about this through your own context to be critical in terms of how that might may or may not impact your own setting Um, but I think for a busy classroom teacher just engaging with some of those popular social media platforms alongside them places like the EEF and also some really prominent um, bloggers now in my role as a CPD leader not only would we have blog of the week where people were signposted to different blogs that perhaps I'd read and thought were really interesting but there'd also be on our website lists of different places that they could go and access links and podcasts so I am a bit of a fan of curating podcasts and blogs but I appreciate that as you know in terms of your question perhaps not everybody's working in a school where they've got leaders doing that so just building up your own banks really is something I'd encourage people to do save them on your laptop and start to create curate your own library that you can dip in and out of. Because I certainly, over the last couple of years, have come back to things that I've read and, and either further challenged my thinking or questioned. Um so I think if you can build up your own library, irrespective of what your school culture is like, then I think that's only going to be a positive.
1: I love that advice because you know, when we started teaching, there was this idea that you got research when you went on a course. And it's so nice. We live in a time now where you don't have to wait for that. I often think about this podcast and like, we've self made really selfishly, to be honest, (laughs) loads of CPD, like we've spoken to leaders all over the country, just because we decided to pick up a microphone and talk to people. Now, not everyone needs to make a podcast. But what I think that does illustrate is there's a big world out there of Clever, lovely people like yourself who are more than happy to offer advice and talk to you. And uh, what you said about curating your own list, you've actually, your pinned tweet on Twitter, I think, is an epic collection of podcasts and blogs, actually. So, yeah, there's loads of that stuff out there that people can access, even if their leaders aren't pointing them to it.
2: Yeah, if I could just add one more thing there, though, Russell. I think we are in danger of having lots of terminology at the moment. So we're talking about research, we're talking about evidence, we're talking about evidence informed practice. So when I think about research, I do tend to think about academic research, peer reviewed journals, which at the moment, doing a master's, I've got access to. But I'd also encourage listeners to engage with the Charter College of Teaching and look into a membership because through that membership, then you've got access to research journals. And I sort of categorize that as quite a purist sense or take on research. Whereas if we're thinking about evidence, then it's not to say that the EEF isn't about research but they've synthesized lots of meta-analyses they've done all of the hard work for us and they're essentially signposting us to Mm. the best bets in what what could potentially have an impact in your school and I really do use the word could purposefully (laughs) because I think every setting is different and so they're not trying to say here's our toolkit there's a load of silver bullets you absolutely have to be critical in the way that you engage with the toolkit Mm. and you have to really really know your starting points but I think there's a danger sometimes of us to use research and evidence interchangeably and and I think that's also important if you were a class teacher or a leader in a school wanting to take on a much more evidence-informed approach to teaching and learning curriculum assessment I think even having a glossary sort of some terminology that you're collectively we're back to social norms you're agreeing as a collective this is what we understand this is our sense making of these particular words because that can be bamboozling for people and it can also be something that prevents people from engaging with evidence Mm. because it feels very highbrow so Mm. I think also that's a useful piece of work to do in terms of individual settings and and, and developing that collective understanding.
1: I love that the um, walkthroughs from Tom Sherrington was trying to do that really wasn't it is give some common terms they we all use these words yeah.
0: And Catherine I know you're really passionate about collaborative inquiry as a professional development approach Could you tell us more about this model, how it works and what the benefits are for teachers and children?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we're really fortunate to know more than we've ever known before about effective CPD and collaboration is one of the indicators that actually if CPD has a collaborative approach, then it's more likely to lead to a change in practice. However, we are in a situation where if what we know about CPD is right, then why are we still getting so much of it wrong? In the sense that so much CPD time, money is spent and it's not necessarily then leading to the type of impact with student outcomes that we would want. I think there's a variety of reasons for that. I think there's definitely a piece of further work to do around habits, social norms, and we've touched upon those. But nevertheless, despite all of that, and I think this l- aligns to what I was saying about the EEF, I still personally think collaboration is a really powerful tool for several reasons. I think it's a really powerful tool to develop the types of relationships where teachers will be very open and honest about their vulnerabilities, insecurities in the classroom. And one of my education heroes, Viviane Robinson, talks about this in in her body of work around student-centred leadership. So she talks about relational trust, which draws upon the work from Brick and Schneider, around how important it is for teachers to have the opportunity to work with each other so they can learn with and from one another. The caveat, here though is that we often do collaboration really poorly Uh, we assume that because people are adults we'll put them in a room together or we'll set them on the same task and they'll just go off and do it but I mean I'm sure the three of us on this call have got some stories about what collaboration looks like in the classroom with students and I would say that sometimes that can be very similar with adults And so I think that there is a reason why collaboration doesn't necessarily always have the evidence of impact to back it up. And I think that's because more often than not, we forget that we need to have some really clear input into what effective collaboration looks like, the active ingredients of effective collaboration, and make sure that people are really, really clear on the expectations, and then really support them to ask each other questions. And we tend to focus a lot on asking effective questions, but not necessarily then on act listening which is a really hard skill takes lots of time to develop and so you know all of these components are absolutely integral to enacting a really powerful collaborative inquiry cycle So I think there's the human piece around the asking questions and the listening that can sometimes uh, be a slight barrier. I think another issue is that we can say to people, you've got the opportunity to carry out some collaborative inquiry. So you're going to take some time to work together to identify a problem of practice. And you could use hard and soft data. So it could be book looks. Uh, classroom observations. Now classroom observations not to to pass judgment but to be able to provide another pair of eyes and insights for a teacher so that when they're in the throes of teaching they perhaps are are unaware of both the intended and unintended consequences of their actions. So that's really important. So you're identifying your problem of practice and you're then creating, using research, engaging with evidence, engaging with evidence, I should say, rather than research to create some form of intervention or approach that you're then going to trial in the classroom to try and uh, and mitigate against that problem of practice or to try and improve uh, a specific aspect of uh, student outcomes or your teaching practice that isn't quite being as impactful as it could but a barrier is that schools sort of say go off then engage with research or engage with evidence but then where do they go so if they haven't got things like a cpd library or they haven't got access to a a charter college membership or they've got no way of being able to talk to external expertise like ollie cav like tom sherrington like mary myatt you know we're we're blessed to have a range of so many people um, that can support schools but if you're a busy classroom teacher you might be unaware of of what's available for you so you around and then you you perhaps make choices that aren 't evidence informed and then whatever it is that you 've chosen doesn 't end up making a difference so that 's another barrier and then finally the other issue is that people often don't have enough time so collaborative inquiry more often than not is something that people have to have to do on top of a really busy teaching timetable and it should never be a have it should always be a want so it should be an opportunity for people to fine-tune their practice and make sure that their CPD is absolutely driven by their own needs and the needs of their students and it should be aligned to their performance management but time needs to be given needs to be given for people to be able to work collaboratively with one another if we're scrambling around at the end of the day or the beginning of the day or at people's lunch times we're never going to have the quality the type of quality conversations that will really then unlock learning in one another so i think a really really powerful tool when enacted well but more often than not it's not implemented well and then that leads people to think that it's perhaps not as not as uh, useful as it actually is
1: I think that's a great answer it does feel like anything in schools that is introduced in such a way that it's an extra and it's not given that time it just however brilliant the thing is it's just more work and that's how it's seen and I know as a leader I've got that wrong lots of times in the past where in my head it's a great idea but the way it's done is is so important isn't it if people are going to be receptive and it's going to have an impact on the children
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was really fortunate to to work in a very outward facing mat who were really innovative and they actually just gave me total agency to create a collaborative inquiry model that would be fit for purpose. And I was fortunate to work with Vivian Porritt of WomenEd. In in another role, uh, Vivian's done some fantastic work around CPD and particularly impact. And so that was an opportunity to design a model of collaboration where teachers were given at least a half term to deeply inquire into what their business as usual in the classroom was. So really trying to understand what was happening for students. So picking a certain subject area. And then developing a hunch. And if that hunch led to a dead end, that's absolutely fine. We're going to go back to the beginning so that by the end of that half term, you've got absolute clarity on what the the greatest need is, because that's something else that's really important here. More often than not, when people are just asked to collaborate, pick whatever you want i've got huge issues with that because yeah. who's to say that you're going to pick the thing that's going to lead to the greatest difference in student outcomes and i could pick some i could be alright with questioning but i might just pick questioning because i can't be bothered to do anything else and that sounds very pessimistic and i'm not for a second saying that teachers do it because they can't be bothered i think more often than not people are overstretched and so you just choose something because actually you know that you haven't got the time to be able to engage with it in the with the way in the way that you would want to But anyway, things get chosen. They then don't lead to perhaps as much impact as they could. And I think giving people that half a term would be absolute madness if I said that to some people and people would be sort of saying, but where's the evidence? How do you know the time's not wasted? But actually, you know that none of that matters because by the end of that collaborative inquiry cycle, when you're hitting then the beginning of the summer term, and really celebrating successes, really celebrating the key learning, things that have worked well, things that have gone wrong, because that's an integral part of the process as well, then you realize CPD is so much more than trying to collect evidence or keeping tabs on people. To get to a place where people are absolutely taking ownership of their professional development, you've got to give them trust, you've got to give them autonomy, and you have to give them time.
1: Perfect. I love that. So to end, Catherine, I don't want to end the conversation, I find it really interesting, but to end, do you think there are some teaching approaches that are still pretty prevalent in schools that aren't at all grounded in evidence? And I'm not raising this to make anyone feel bad because no one, as you've said before, is intentionally not doing a good job or doing things wrong intentionally. But are there any things that you think schools could do with stopping
2: Really good question. So I think that sometimes certain things like growth mindset, for example, gets a real bashing. And I was very fortunate when I was doing some work with Challenging Learning to attend a seminar with Carol Dweck and in fact I'm going to name drop here ended up having breakfast with John Hattie and at the time John was talking to James Nottingham about some of the misconceptions around growth mindset and he at the time had been working very closely with Carol and really spoke about the misunderstanding with that particular piece of work and how schools took it and there were lethal mutations all over the place and Nick Rose has, has written a really great article on the Ambition Institute website about what I mean by lethal mutations, it's a phrase coined by Dylan million but it's basically where we take a piece of research and we sort of we do a very surface level reading we think we understand and we then apply it in our own setting but without fidelity so we don't stay true to the active ingredients that made that research powerful in the first place and then when it doesn't work we think well that wasn't right in the first place and so I think growth mindset whilst Whilst it hasn't been as impactful as perhaps it was first billed, I don't think we necessarily used it in the right way. It's so much more than inspirational posters and so much more than I can't do it yet. And there's a lot of work to do around social norms and forming habits and mindsets. And so I was really pleased to see that some recent research that Harry Fletcher Wood championed actually on Twitter around, maybe we've been bashing growth mindsets, And there are actually some green shoots in the way that it could be used to help develop a a much more resilient mindset to learning. So that that's an interesting uh, myth to explore. Obviously, learning styles is one that on my initial teacher training was covered. I know it was covered on a lot of people's initial teacher training. There'll be some schools that are still asking people to write down what type of learner you are visual auditory kinesthetic, et cetera. But I think that's probably the myth that's stuck around for the longest and actually there isn't any robust research to to back that up and I remember painstakingly at the beginning of my career writing all sorts of crazy thing in different things in different boxes utter madness and so what I really want to emphasize is we'd be really hard pushed to find any teacher in our sector who hasn't done crazy things but with the very best of intentions. Mm. I will have done loads and surely that is part of the learning process. We can't on the one hand say we need to take a much more evidence approach to teaching and learning but on the other say but you can't ever make mistakes or adopt practices Mm. that perhaps you know aren't going to be as fruitful. I'm not suggesting we should all start enacting learning styles in the classroom but I think sometimes we need to be a little bit more cautious with just how critical we can be of some of that research but to start at the beginning of this go back to the beginning of this conversation we haven't got the time to waste on things that are ineffectual and actually are not grounded in evidence and and learning styles is most definitely one that sticks out but I'm very mindful of time So I'd sort of finish on encouraging people to read Daisy Christodoulou's uh, The Seven Myths. I think that's a really fantastic book to read. And she obviously unpicks that teacher led instruction is often seen as passive. But actually, we know that that's the absolute opposite, that actually teacher instruction is really important. I know when I was training, we were told to talk less. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that teacher talk was a bad thing. I think that's something I'd absolutely like to see quashed. Um, I think there's an obsession with 21st century skills, but yet we haven't necessarily got the research to back that up. I also think that there's an issue around discovery learning. But I suppose what I really want to emphasise with all of this, Russell and Steve, is that... I have a sneaky feeling that things keep going around in cycles. And so, whilst there are most definitely certain myths that have been proved to have a lack of research behind them, I'm always quite cautious. I think sometimes we need a little bit more tentative language and we tend to get very polarized in our sector, particularly on Twitter. And so, I'm not trying to say I'm a fence sitter, but I do try to come at it with a a very a critical lens but also then try and consider it from both sides because as we know every context is different
1: you're absolutely right and when you actually look at research you realize how nuanced this all is anyway and if you listen to someone like Dylan William he'll often bring that bit of nuanced sort of uh, perspective won't he when people do reach to extremes he'll be the one that says well you know even something like discovery learning well they might learn better by discovering something it might just be an inefficient way of doing things he'll always bring that little element of kind of nuance to the conversation and i like that
2: yeah and what works for one person in their classroom might not work for another person in their classroom because it's under to what under what conditions is it working Mm -hmm. and how replicable are those conditions and what impact does the student's starting points, the individual teacher's expertise, the context, the time of day. You know, there's so many factors, which is why I'd encourage people to use the language of evidence informed, where we know that it's still based on empirical evidence, but we really acknowledge that it's much, much harder in a real classroom environment to replicate some of this research. And so the very best that we can do is to take that nuanced approach when we're reading through research and just to emphasize once more never ever underestimate how important our individual contexts are
1: brilliant well Catherine we'll have to end there I don't want to it's been really interesting talking to you thank you for an excellent conversation and for our listeners if you've enjoyed it please do get in touch and let us know what you Think, leave a positive rating and review that's always a kind thing to do and do subscribe to our podcast because then you don't miss wonderful episodes like this uh, you can follow Catherine on twitter she's at kl Morgan underscore two and she's a great person to follow that's how i came across Catherine. talks lots of sense and please do tell your colleagues and teacher friends about the podcast so that they don't miss out you be the person to drip 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 that uh, beautiful kind of research that comes through our podcast to other people thank you Catherine. it's been a pleasure talking to you
0: Thanks very much. <laughs> really Thank you so much. Deputy, the deputy.